You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. And we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Hey, it's good to see you again. My name is Travis. Uh, like I said, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a good morning to be here. We are going to continue in our series, The Lent. And so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible and you want one of those old archaic paper ones, all you've got to do is just head to the connect table after the gathering, and you can pick one up there. In the meantime, if you want to follow along with the notes and stuff on a phone, if you go to the Uversion app and just go to events, type in Grace Point Church Northwest, you can click on that, and it'll have all the notes and everything on there we're going to be going through this morning. Here at Grace Point Church, we exist within a collective of churches here in the Las Vegas Valley. We have one here in Las Vegas. We have one in North Las Vegas. And together, we live out a common mission of making disciples of Jesus that live in community for the community. And that's why we're serving on March 21st at the Bluegrass Festival. We want to be for our community. So remember, as you leave here today, if you want to help with that, just head to the Connect table. Now, this morning, we're going to be continuing in our series during the season of Lent. We have titled Dying to Live. And over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at some selected passages in the Gospel of Luke while being challenged to die to some things, to put some things to death, in order to experience greater joy in Jesus. And what Luke wants to tell us today, I believe, is this, that he wants you and I to die to thinking too highly of ourselves, thinking too highly of ourselves. And that's a good thing. Why? How many of you have seen American Idol? How many of you seen uh, America's Got Talent? There are times in which I will come home and my kids will be in the living room, they'll have YouTube on the TV and they'll say, Dad, you've got to see this. With that, they will pull up a a video of somebody on America's Got Talent or American Idol who thinks they can sing, thinking too highly of themselves, honestly, but we realize they can't sing. I've seen videos of magicians who instead of performing a magic act, end up catching themselves on fire and skateboarders like trying to rail down something only for them to get hurt. Why did all those things happen? Because those people were thinking too highly of themselves. I've coached plenty of soccer teams and basketball teams to see my teams that I'm coaching look at their schedule, and they'll see a team on that schedule, and they'll say, hey, they're not that good. We're going to win that game. What do you think happens to them? They get to that game, and because they're thinking too highly of themselves, they don't take it seriously, and they end up losing. This happened to me when I was in high school. Some friends of mine and I, we went to a church to play some ball, and there was a bunch of guys there that were just really, really old. I'm just going to be straight. They were just really old, and they had short shorts, goggles, everything. And my, they go, hey, do you guys want to play some basketball? you guys want to run? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I got my friends together. They destroyed us. I mean, they were shooting like granny shots, hooks, everything. I found out one of the guys actually played for a team called Ruff's Runts. Some of you know who that is. If you don't, I will tell you. It's the University of Kentucky team way back in the day. Okay? So he was legit. We got embarrassed. We got ran out of the gym. Or think about somebody who's trying to move. And they did like me when I first moved here, trying to move from a condo to condo. They load everything in the back of their truck, and they just got an arm out the window just holding it all down, right? What's going on there? They're thinking too highly of themselves. In our text today, we're going to see there are two people. There's one guy who thinks too highly of themselves, and then there's a woman who thinks rightly about herself. And the question Luke wants us to answer here this morning is, which one are you? So look in your Bibles with me at Luke 7, 36. Here's what we read. One of the Pharisees said to him, or or one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. 
Now, before this dinner party in which Jesus is invited to, we see in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus has been performing a lot of miracles. In chapter 7, the first 10 verses, I believe, of this chapter alone, we see that Jesus heals a centurion's servant. After that, he heals a widow's son, brings him from death back to life. And one of the things that's significant about that miracle is the fact that Jesus ends up touching this briar or this open casket as it's being carried through the crowds. The body's on it, and he touches that plank that that dead man was laying on. Now, according to Numbers chapter 19, for Jesus to touch that plank would make him what? Ceremonially unclean. Outside, unable to go to the temple. But what ends up happening? Instead of Jesus becoming unclean, what happens? Jesus raises man to life. Here's what you've got to see in the miracles of Christ. Whoever is unclean, whoever is caught in their sins, when they come to Jesus, they don't make Jesus unclean. They don't make Jesus sinful, but rather Jesus heals them, right? And so that's what you see going on here. Now, Luke tells us that there's this Pharisee that we're going to see here in a bit by the name of Simon. He was intrigued by all this. He saw Jesus performing the miracles. He heard some of Jesus' teaching, and he wondered, could there be more to Jesus than meets the eye? And so what does he do? He invites Jesus over for dinner to check it out, check him out, see what's going on. Now, when you and I, we think of these dinner parties, something like this, we tend to think of our homes here in Las Vegas. If we were to invite somebody over for dinner, we would go into a house, into a kitchen or a dining room. If you have a backyard, and it's pretty nice, you might go eat out in the backyard with cinder block walls all around you. However, that's not what this is like. Wealthy homes in the first century oftentimes had a courtyard or an open patio out front. It had a garden. It had a fountain. You could hear birds just like you do right now, right? Like, that's what's going on. And so when they would invite a famous guest or somebody of popularity over, they would oftentimes eat out in that open courtyard so that people could walk by, peer in, see what's happening, Catch what's going on. We get this. My brother uh, sent me this picture a few months ago. You can see it right here. He had the opportunity to go to the Louisville, Kentucky basketball game. Now, afterwards, some of you guys already noticed who's in this picture besides my brother and his friend Randy. But he ended up going, sneaking into the reporter's place where the reporters end up interviewing the coaches. Now, Jared and Randy, who are in blue, are standing in the back by the cameras. They're peering in. They're looking in. As long as they don't go past those cameras, they're okay. But who is standing in the middle of them? Bill Murray. That's Bill Murray. You see, Bill Murray's son is a coach, assistant coach for the University of Louisville. And so not only is my brother taking a picture of him and Randy, they're peering in, looking at Coach Cal and, you know, whatever the Louisville coach's name is. We don't care. We don't speak his name. It's kind of like Voldemort. But, but like, they're looking in, right? They're okay as long as they're on the outside. Everything's good. And so he snaps a picture of him, Randy, and Bill Murray because Bill Murray can't even go past. That's what's going on here. Jesus is at a party. Like my brother, he's eating with Simon. People are peering in. They're looking at him. They're trying to figure out what is going on. And what would have been a common courtesy for Simon at this party to do would have been to come up to Jesus and to embrace him and to kiss him on the cheek, to offer him some water to wash his feet or have a servant wash his feet, to allow him to have some ointment or oil to put on his head to freshen up. Yet what does Simon offer? None of this. He doesn't offer any of it. Luke tells us that Jesus and Simon were just eating probably laying on a ground with their feet away from the table, propped up on their left elbow, just putting food into their mouths. And check out what happens as they're eating. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, 
when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So Jesus and Simon were eating, and a woman breaks the barrier. She goes past the cameras, if you will. She rushes into the room and she crashes the party. Yet we see she hasn't come to take a selfie. She hasn't come to just see what the fuss is all about. No, she has come to serve. But who is she? Well, Luke tells us she's a woman of the what? The city. And she's a sinner. Most commentators believe that this woman was likely a prostitute. And somehow she heard that Jesus was eating at Simon's, the Pharisee's house, and immediately she heads that way. Why? Well, we're not sure, but we know that just like Simon, more than likely prior to this moment, she had an encounter with Jesus. She might have heard Jesus teaching. She might have had a private conversation with Jesus. We can't be certain, but what we can be certain of is this, Jesus changed her life. How do we know? What does she do at the party? She comes running into the room weeping. She takes an alabaster flask of ointment from around her neck and she anoints Jesus' feet with it. She spread it around with her hair while repeatedly kissing his feet. I mean, it's quite the scene. Think about it. The social etiquette that she is just throwing out the window, that she would just rush into this party, not invited. She, yeah, you can peer in. You can be an outsider looking in, but you can't cross the barrier. And what does she do? She goes right past the barrier. Now, that alabaster flask that was around her neck was a very expensive object. We have a picture, I believe, up here where you can see what this somewhat would have looked like. It's got a wide base at the bottom where the perfume would be put in with this little neck and this little opening. Why? Because they wanted the aroma to come out, but they wanted the perfume to stay in. And in a time in which there wasn't deodorant or possibly soap for a woman of the city, this expensive flask was the tool of her trade. And the only way for her to be able to anoint Jesus' feet is to what? Break the flask. To get rid of it. To open it up. She lets down her hair, breaking all kinds of social norms. The Talmud, which is the rabbinical writing of the teachers of that time, said for a woman to let down her hair in front of anyone but her husband was grounds for divorce. Don't miss what Luke is saying here. Nothing in this text is sexual or erotic, but rather this woman is displaying a passionate scene of gratitude for all that Jesus has done in her life. Not a single word is spoken in these three verses, yet there is so much you and I are meant to see and hear. Think about it. You got Simon and you have this woman. Both of them have an encounter with Jesus, yet both of them have drastically different responses. Simon doesn't offer the basic hospitable actions of a host. He's not impressed with Jesus. He might have heard his teaching, seen his miracles, but he's not moved. He invites Jesus into his home, but he doesn't pour out his life for Jesus. This woman, on the other hand, heard Jesus' teachings, possibly saw his miracles, and what does she do? She joyfully surrenders it all. She comes to Jesus, taking the very thing her identity is wrapped up in, possibly the very source of her income, breaks it open, just pours it out to lavish it upon Jesus. She shows overwhelming gratitude and love and devotion that overrides any fear of man. 
Now this woman's actions absolutely disgust Simon. And listen to what happens in verse 39. Now when the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see, Luke provides us some insight into what Simon is processing. He invited Jesus to dinner to see what he's all about. He had his ideas. He thought there was more to Jesus than meets the eye. Yet when this woman comes in and touches Jesus, he immediately makes the conclusion, he can't be a prophet. He can't be a man of God. No man of God would allow such a sinner to touch them. And if you know anything about the ancient language and the biblical language that it was written in, that word touch is almost like a dig. It's almost like an offense. As if Simon is saying, how naive is Jesus? Does he not get what she is suggesting by touching him like that? You see, Simon looks at this and he's absolutely disgusted. He would have been okay with a Jesus that would have shunned her condemned her, pushed her out, judging her in her sin. But what Simon is doing is making the mistake that many of us tend to make. We tend to think too highly of ourselves. We tend to think that Jesus came for those who have it all together. In a recent survey, 82% of Americans said they believe that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. It's not in there. And some of you are like, oh, the world, how bad is the world? They believe that. Well, I'll tell you this. Those who consider born-again Christians only did better by 1%. You've got to listen to me. Jesus has come for those who can't help themselves. Jesus has come for those who have no ability to help themselves. The gospel that we follow, the gospel we just sang about, is not spelled D-O, go and do, but rather it is spelled D-O-N-E. It's about what Jesus has done. You and I are like this woman. We have no ability whatsoever to make ourselves right with God. And if we are judging people, thinking that they are unable or unworthy to come to God, then what we must realize is we're no different than them. We're just as lost in our sin. The other day, Pastor John and I were driving around, and uh, we saw this bumper sticker on a car, and it should be up here. It said, one cross plus three nails equals four given. I remember as we were driving, I just went, man, that's so cheesy. Like, like who's going to be driving down the road, sitting at a stop sign, and go, oh, what must I do to be saved? I must trust Jesus and go get, get in a pool. Like, nobody's going to do that, right? And so we made fun of it. We're driving around, we're like, why? I mean, look at that. I mean, it's not even a really good heart. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we were making fun of it. But then I got to thinking about it later as I was preparing this message, and it just haunted me. Why? Because think of the equation. One cross plus three nails equals what? Forgiven. Where are you in that equation? You're nowhere. It's not one cross plus three nails plus your good works equal forgiven. It's not one cross plus three nails plus your giving equals forgiven. It's one cross plus three nails equals forgiven. Bumper sticker's not as cheesy as I thought. So Simon is saying, if Jesus is a prophet, he would know what she was thinking And so Jesus responds, and he responds not just by explaining this woman's actions, but he responds by telling Simon his secret thoughts. Look at verses 40 through 43. Listen to what it says. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Listen to what he says. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 
When they could not pay, he canceled the death debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus tries to help Simon by answering his private thoughts with a short story or what is known in the Bible as a parable. It's just a short story with a heavenly meaning. He essentially says to him, there's a guy who owes a lot and then there's a guy who owes little. Both are forgiven. Who would love the canceller of the debt the most? And notice how Simon responds. I suppose. I suppose the one with the greater debt. It's almost like he's offended by the question. Like, Jesus, why are you telling me kids' stories? I suppose. Well, of course. It's not I suppose. It's of course the one with the greater debt would love more. However, what Jesus is trying to do here is to correct Simon's misunderstanding. Many of us are greatly mistaken when it comes to forgiveness. We think of it as merely sweeping it under the rug, letting it go without repayment. Like Simon, many of us tend to understand or need to understand that being forgiven a debt doesn't just throw it into the air. It doesn't, just, it doesn't just disappear. You see, in order for the debt to be forgiven, what has to happen? Not only does the canceler need to say you're forgiven, but what does the canceler need to do? He needs to bear the cost of the debt. He needs to, as many of you have heard me say, he needs to eat the cost. Many of you have heard uh, analogies. I've used several analogies to explain this, that what true forgiveness is. Well, I've got a new one. If you see up here on the screen, you'll see there's a picture of my daughter holding that dog. And you notice what I said, that dog. Because recently, what that dog did is that dog ate my favorite flip-flops. Now, that dog is cute, right? But there's a devil inside. No, I'm just playing. Like... (laughs) So he eats my flip-flops. Now, I could go up to my daughter and her dog, and I can say, I forgive you. But does that really do anything? Sure, it may help them feel better, but it does not fix or replace the chewed-up flip-flop. Forgiving doesn't do away with the bill or dissolve the loss. In order for me to really forgive her and that dog, whose name is Phoenix, which we do love, but in order for me to forgive them, what do I have to do? I have to bear the cost. I have to eat the cost, if you will. i got to pull out my money and buy a new pair of flip-flops. What Simon needed to understand is that Jesus has come to eat the cost, to bear the cost of this woman. But Jesus has also come to eat the cost and to bear the cost of his sin. You see, Simon didn't just misunderstand what forgiveness was all about. Simon misunderstood the whole big E on the I chart, if you will. He didn't think he was a sinner, you see, there is a $500 sinner in the, in, the, in the analogy, and there's a $50 sinner, if you will, but they're both what? They're both sinners. Neither one of them can pay it back. You see, the difference between Simon and this woman is just simply this. She gets it. He doesn't. She may be a $500 sinner. He may be a $50 sinner, but both of them are what? Sinners. Kent Hughes says it like this. He says the high-class moralist had the same problem as the low-class prostitute. Both of them were in an equally sinful situation. And Simon, what was keeping him from seeing Jesus correctly was what? All his good deeds that were done apart from faith in Jesus. That's what's going on. Tim Keller would say it's all his damnable good deeds. That basically he looked at her and saw her as lower, saw him as righteous. 
and failed to realize what she got, that she could do nothing to earn her way into God's grace. All she had could do was just run to Jesus and just pour everything out to him. Not to earn anything, but because of the love she experienced from him through his teaching and through his miracles and through his work. Think about her actions. She weeps with gratitude. He doesn't. She gives up and turns from her sin. He doesn't. She washes. He doesn't. She anoints. He doesn't. And what does Jesus say in this text? That the biggest sinners have the greatest impact for Christ because what? They realize their debt. They realize what they have done. And when they realize how enormous their debt is in comparison to him and what he paid, they joyfully live for him. Some of you have heard of this guy named the Apostle Paul. You hear about him in the, the New Testament. He was a, a missionary for Jesus, right? Going around starting churches, telling people about Jesus. But before he did that, we read in the book of Acts, who was Paul? He was a religious Pharisee whose whole goal and objective in life was to annihilate the name of Jesus from the face of the earth. So how did he do that? He persecuted the church. He literally went into city after city after city with letters to throw people into jail. He even gave and sanctioned and said, yes, kill the first martyr we read about in the Bible by the name of Stephen. It says, yes, kill him. Yet it's on his way to one of those cities that Jesus meets him, literally knocks him on his rear end, saves him, shows him. He says, Saul, Saul, why? Well, that was his name beforehand. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, it was in grace that he got saved. Jesus came to him while he was on his way to annihilate Christians. Tell me, what did he do to earn it? Nothing. And Jesus meets him while he's on his way, rescues him and saves him and makes him one of his disciples. You read in 1 Timothy 1, what does Paul say? That he is the worst sinner he possibly knows. The worst one he knows. He understood the enormity of his debt in comparison to who Jesus is. And he says, I'm the worst sinner I know. But you read in Philippians, he was with joy doing what? Telling everybody he possibly can and could about Jesus. Why? To earn something? No, because he had been given something he knows he could never earn. John uh, Newton, he wrote a famous song you might have heard about called Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, now I see. I'm not going to sing it for you because he could sing it. He could do it well. Me, not so much. But many people don't know the story behind John Newton. You see, before he wrote Amazing Grace, he ran a slave trade ship. He was known for profanity, coarseness, and debauchery, which even shocked many a sailor. However, on March 21st, 1748, Jesus saved him. He left his boat he went into preaching the gospel full time. He spoke out against slavery and he partnered with this guy by the name of William Wilberforce to abolish the African slave trade. And then he wrote Amazing Grace. One of my favorite things he, he would say is, I'm a great sinner, but Christ is what? A great savior. He knew the enormity of his debt, the goodness of his Jesus, and he joyfully served Jesus. You see, those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have been forgiven the most love the most. They turn from their sin and they live for Jesus. So to make sure Simon got this point, Jesus seeks to drive it home in these next three verses. Listen to what he says. <clears throat> then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, 
but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus looks at Simon and says, everything you were supposed to do and you didn't do, guess what? She did it. She did it and so much more. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He is not saying that her actions earned her forgiveness. Rather, he's saying her actions are the fruit of her forgiveness. The root is Jesus. The fruit are these actions. But why did she love much and Simon little? It's because she realized how much Jesus forgave her, while Simon failed to realize how much he had been forgiven. And the question is, why do you and I display so much, so little love for Jesus and others? I believe it's because we seriously misunderstand the gravity of what Jesus has done. You see, to the degree in which you and I understand and see what Jesus has done for you is the degree to which you will love Jesus and love other people. To belabor the point, let's say that I've got a library fee of 10 cents at the local library office Centennial. And let's say that my buddy, Pastor Nathan here, decides, hey, I'm going to go pay that 10 cent library fee for Pastor Travis. And I find out about it. I go in, they're like, hey, you had a 10 cent debt. Uh, Pastor Nathan uh, paid it for you. Sure, okay. That's not worth a coffee, Right? Like, that's not even worth me taking the time to go buy a note, write it out, and send it to Nathan. It's, just, it's not that big of a deal. I might send him a text to say, thanks, bro. But that's about it, right? And Nathan's really offended right now. <laughs> no, no, I'm just playing. But let's say I go to the Centennial Library, and I find out I have a $10 billion debt. I go in. They're like, hey, we were going to take your house, your land, everything. But this guy named Pastor Nathan walked in here, and he paid this whole thing for you. Do you think I'm just sending a card Do you think I'm just sending a text? Do you think I'm just buying him one cup of coffee? No, I'm probably falling at his feet and calling him Lord, right? Why? Because it was insurmountable. There's no way. I mean, I could build like how many libraries with that amount of money, right? Like there's no way I could pay that. But Nathan did it. And he did it on my behalf. The greater understanding and realization of forgiveness you have of what Jesus has done, guess what? It will create greater love in you for Jesus and for other people. When we think too highly of ourselves and we think we have earned that which he has given, we're not going to joyfully go serve. We're not going to joyfully go love. We're going to do it thinking that he's in our debt rather than we're in his. It's foundationally different. And so Jesus declares this woman saved. How? Listen to what he says. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with, uh, with, began, or with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Notice what Jesus says and doesn't say. He doesn't say, woman, your tears have saved you. Woman, your breaking of the alabaster flask, letting down your hair, kissing and washing my feet, that's what saved you. What does he say? He says, your faith has saved you. But what is faith? Is it a feeling? Is it an emotion? Sure, but no. Yes and more. You see, what faith is, is a willful voluntary act of a person to place their complete trust in someone or something. 
And to trust in Jesus means that you are entrusting yourself holistically, everything you are and everything uh, you can be even, everything in your life, you trust in him in faith. You trust in his perfect life for you. You trust in his substitutionary death for you. And you trust in his glorious resurrection in which he is declaring, I did everything for those who trusted me to be brought back into a relationship with God. You trust in Jesus with the entirety of your being. That is faith. All of you right now are exhibiting such masterful faith and you don't even know it. You're sitting in that chair. You came in here, not a single person that came into this room sat down and looked at that chair, picked it up, inspected it, make sure it was up to code. What did you do? You just sat down. And you entrusted yourself to that plastic and four pieces of metal. That's what you did. You see, that's the way we trust in Jesus. We don't lean upon Jesus like this, that if Jesus, which he'll never be, if he was pulled out, we would fall over. Like, like we don't, we, he doesn't get pulled out, and then we're not leaning on him in such a way, if he was pulled out, we could stay upstanding. But rather, you and I are to lean and put our faith in Jesus so much that if he was pulled out, we would fall to the floor, though it'll never happen. You see, to not believe in Jesus or God doesn't mean that someone doesn't believe in anything. Rather, you don't believe in something because you already believe in something else. A famous missionary by the, Leslie, by the name of Leslie Newbigin says it like this. He says, doubt is not an autonomous activity. One can only rationally doubt a statement on the basis of something else which one believes to be true. You see, all of us have belief and faith, and the question is, what is your belief and faith in at this moment? And is the amount of faith you have, is the amount of faith that you have, is that what saves you? I'd probably say No. I would say it's the object of your faith that saves you. See, Tim Keller is a famous pastor up in New York, and he tells an analogy to illustrate this kind of like this. He said there's two guys who are climbing on a cliff, and they slip and they fall, and they land on a rocky ledge. The only way for them to get off that ledge is a rocky outcrop to their right and to their left. So the first climber that fell, standing there with his buddy, says, I have faith have so much faith, so much confidence, so much assurance that this rocky outcrop on the left is going to hold me. I believe it with all my heart. The other climber sits there and goes, I'm not so sure about that one. I have faith in the one on the right. I think that one's going to hold me, but I have some doubt, but I trust, but I'm just not sure. I trust. And so they both make their decision. The guy on the left, he steps on the left, on the rocky outcrop, and what happens to him to the left? He falls to the ground and he dies. The guy to the right steps to his right and it works and he's able to be saved. What saved them? Was it the guy in his great faith? No, it was the guy who trusted in the right rock. You see, it's not the amount of faith you have, it's the object in which you're placing your faith in that saves you. You see, the amount of faith and strength of your faith and the perfection of your faith is not what saves you, it's the object. And what you've got to understand is just like this woman, Jesus is the rock. He is the one we are to put our faith and our trust in. And the question is, how much faith does she need? Just enough to take a step. Just enough to cross a barrier and to lavish him with love and grace. Not thinking too highly of herself, but trusting in the sufficiency of who he is and who he says he's going to be. You see, is your faith in God, in a God who helps those who help themselves? 
Is your faith in a famous leader who once said on his deathbed, strive without ceasing? That sounds exhausting, does it not? Is your faith in that Jesus will save you after all that you can do? Or is your faith in what Jesus has done through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, period? Here's what you've got to see. What's the problem with the first three of those? God helps those who help themselves. Strive without ceasing. After all that you can do. What are all those gospels saying? You got what it takes. And that's a false gospel. All those gospels are saying, think more highly of yourself than you ought to. You can do it. You can strive without ceasing. God will help you after you help yourself. There's no good news in that. There's no peace in that. How do you know you strived enough? How do you know you helped yourself enough? How do you know you did enough for Jesus' sake? You don't. The woman could go in peace for she knew she was saved by her faith in Jesus and what he has done alone. That's what's going on here. And what did that do? It welled up within her great love for Jesus. Simon thought too highly of himself. He thought he knew better. And what Lent is telling you and me is we need to die to that way of thinking so that we can have greater joy and confidence in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray.